you know, opinions about hymns are a very individual thing. You don't have to agree with mine, but that seven-year-old hymn, I think, is certainly the finest I know of written in the 21st century, and I think it's going to become a great hymn for generations to come. We're looking today to Matthew chapter 14 as we continue studying God's Word together. We come to a passage that's so very familiar. I have done consecutive studies fairly exhaustively in Luke and not quite as exhaustively in John with you in my years here. And in both of those, we've come to the feeding of the 5,000. And uh, this is a passage I suppose people feel they know very well. You've heard many sermons about it. You say, well, I'm not sure what you can tell me about this that I don't know. Maybe I can't tell you anything you don't know. But there certainly, I hope, is a lesson and a, a blessing for God's people in this as we hear what the Lord was doing as he was now instructing his disciples in the work of ministry. Listen as I read Matthew 14, beginning at verse 13. When Jesus heard what had happened, that is, the death of John the Baptist, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, This is a remote place, and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Jesus replied, They do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. We have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Bring them here to me, he said. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass, taking the five loaves and two fish, and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied, and the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about 5,000 men, besides women and children. (coughs) Excuse me. This is God's holy word. On a ledge, a counter, right above our kitchen sink, for quite a few years now, has resided a small wooden base with a brass plaque on it. You can find things like this in Provident Bookstore. It's a brass plate with a short text of Scripture on it. It gets splashed from the sink, so it it's kind of disreputable looking, to tell you the truth. I wouldn't display it in the living room. But yet, cheap as it was when it was purchased 25 or so years ago, I think Carol and I count it as a prized possession. On this brass plate, and it's put where it is so that we both have to see it frequently, is the text of Matthew 
26. Not this text, a few chapters ahead, 1926, that says, With God, all things are possible. We obtained that little plaque back in the early 1980s when we were in church planting ministry trying to do something that on a weekly basis just absolutely felt impossible. And it was a regular thing to be saying to ourselves, we can't do this. This is just too difficult. We needed to hear with God all things are possible. We needed to be reminded that almost everything Jesus Christ did on this earth flew in the face of what we would call impossibility. He made the sweetest and finest wine out of well water. He made lepers to have smooth, healthy skin again. He made dead people rise up. He built his church based on a leadership team that would not have passed an interview process by our presbytery. People who were uneducated, lots of rough edges, lots of doubts about them, some of them social outcasts, one of them later on, Saul, who hated Christians. And then Jesus died alone in weakness and in the terrors of the death of the cross and miraculously rose from the graveyard where his body was put. And if you would summarize it, you would say the word impossible was not in the vocabulary of Jesus Christ. And it was not on the agenda of the ministry that he did in the name of his Father. Now, Matthew 14 begins a section of this gospel we've been studying in which the primary concern, again, is turning a little bit. And in several things to follow here, we're going to see Jesus training the 12 disciples. Remember I said last week, the focus is is a little more away now from from just going after the crowds or moving about in the towns of Galilee. It's more internally focused on training the disciples to know what ministry is, to know how themselves they will declare the message that Christ brought when he's not with them to physically declare it. And to do this, the disciples are being put in situational challenges, which almost always have them in deep water. In fact, that's not a pun, next week, literally in deep water, uh, to challenge them in such a way that they just don't quite know how to handle it or how to grasp what's expected of them. This feeding of the 5,000 was such a test. It was a test for disciples. Yes, it was an act of practical necessity. You can tell me that that's why it was done, but miracles are never done simply for their own sake or for show. They always teach something. And this is, by the way, the only miracle that shows up in all four of the canonical gospels of Scripture. There are many different miracles that are reported by more than one gospel. This one alone is in all four. So it must be important. Now, we don't expect to ever see this kind of a thing going on. Bread literally multiplied by supernatural power like this. But that isn't even the point. 
there are principles being taught here to the first century disciples and to 21st century disciples about how to walk in dependent faith on the Lord Jesus Christ. How to know with assurance that he and he alone is the power and the supplier behind everything that we do. And when we discover what our weakness is and what our inability is, then we're ready, if we will, to begin to discover his superlative ability to do everything that we cannot. It's an easy lesson to summarize. It's a lot harder to learn and relearn. The Lord, I think, in many ways and in many different areas, allows us to come to an end of ourselves and to face that weakness and that inability so that we may discover and trust in the wonderful power of His grace to do things through us that could not be coming from us. Now, the first point of our text is is very down-to-earth, and it is to ask you to see how Jesus here modeled compassion for the inconvenient needs of people. It says he withdrew by boat with his disciples to a solitary place, but the crowds followed him from the towns. And when they landed and saw the large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now, we know that there's somewhat of a reaction here to the death of John the Baptist, not running away in fear, but certainly a certain amount of sadness, time to reflect, time to ask, well, what's going to happen now, Lord, and and bring the disciples together in a quiet way. Mark's uh, edition of the feeding of the 5,000 is a little more full in its detail than Matthew's. He adds in Mark 6.31 the fact that this retreat was undertaken by Jesus and the 12 disciples for this reason, quote, because so many people were coming and going, they didn't even have time to eat. So plainly, there was a, a motive here of getting away from crowds, a retreat, hopefully uh, go to a solitary place, spend whatever time you designed to spend teaching and resting, recovering. But the Sea of Galilee is a rather small lake. And at least if the weather is clear, you can see what a boat on it is doing for a long distance. And so evidently the popularity of Jesus was still such and the demand for healings was such that people in the lakeside villages somehow knew. The the word spread and they said, in that boat out there is Jesus of Nazareth and we know he's headed for the east side of the lake. Let's go. It must have been a little bit like Paul Revere, kind of riding through the towns. Jesus is going to be in that next village. And people came distances probably of anywhere from 5 to 10 miles on foot to come and be there where they thought the boat was going to land. And so here's an effort to escape crowds, and when they land, there's a bigger crowd than ever. And by the way, we need to be reminded that the typical numbering scheme of counting the men, the crowd was 5,000 or so, we know, the text indicates, there were more than just men there. So there were certainly, easily, you would think, 15, who knows, maybe 20,000 people 
a good-sized stadium for a college football game filled with people, as many people as often would view a Major League Baseball game, gathered to come and have some piece of Jesus. This made me think of a humorous uh, parallel, I guess you'd call it, a movie some of you may know called What About Bob? Any of you remember What About Bob? A few years ago, Richard Dreyfuss plays a psychiatrist, very high-strung man, very tightly wound, and he perfectly plays it. He's ready to escape from his New York, or I think it's New York, office and go out and spend the whole summer on his lakeside house uh, up in New England. I think it's New Hampshire. And, of course, he wants isolation. He wants peace and quiet. And the last thing he wants is, is to have any patient of his to know how to contact him. Well, it's set up. You know what's going to happen. Bill Murray, a very funny guy who plays a wacky patient with just about every kind of fear and paranoia and problem you could think of, highly dependent on his psychiatrist. Can't imagine having the doctor away for a whole summer Bill finds out, or Bill Murray's character finds out a way. He's Bob. Bob finds out a way to get there. Endears himself to the family. Everybody loves Bob except the psychiatrist who does everything in his power, desperate measures to get rid of this guy. Well, I thought of that. And I thought perhaps Jesus could have been like that psychiatrist. But, of course, he wasn't. He could have made a getaway. He could have seen, certainly as they drew the boat in near shore, he could, he could see the throngs of people coming down to the shore. He could have said, men, don't land. Turn around. Go to the opposite side of the lake. We've got to get out of here if we want our solitude. And, you know, you, you have to stop and think, too, well, what was the motive of this crowd? A lot of these people were ones we might call thrill-seekers. They were swept up in a phenomena. Jesus, the healer, was what they wanted. They had their own selfish concerns, you know, a lame hand that didn't work so well or, or something, a, a daughter with a lung disease or whatever it was brought them. They wanted something from Jesus. And they hadn't been plugged in, at least the disciples thought they weren't plugged into the agenda of Jesus. And he could have said, this isn't what we came for. We're out of here. Confession? That's what I would have done. I would have headed right out of there. But Jesus, we're told, sees these people, sees their helplessness, knows that they had great needs, and he came and spent time and changed his agenda. The key word is in verse 14 when it says he had compassion on them. The old English uses a term that doesn't quite mean the same thing today when it would say compassion means being stirred in the bowels, okay? We don't think that means what it meant at one time. But he was grabbed in the pit of his stomach, in the core of his being, with a deep feeling to help these people. To him, they were like milling sheep who had nobody to help them. I was thinking of 1 John 3.17 giving us a challenge from the Apostle John in the New Testament when John wrote, if anyone has possessions 
and sees his brother in need and has not pity, compassion, same basic word, on him, how can the love of God be in him? Friends, John writes, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and with truth. Jesus and the apostles certainly knew what we find out, that dealing with people can be exhausting. Every bit as exhausting as doing heavy manual work. You may not agree with that if you don't spend a lot of time with people and their problems, but it is true. If you ever get involved in some aspect of outreach ministry, or if you simply are being an everyday witness and a caring friend with somebody who engages you and looks to you maybe as they're the place that, that they come for some kind of support spiritually. You know that human situations can suck you dry. And it's very natural for us to want to avoid that. We've got our own agendas. We need to protect ourselves and our own resources and energies, we would say. And there comes a point, and it comes many, many times to most of us, when we have to choose between viewing people with spiritual needs as impertinent annoyances or as God-given opportunities for him to do something through us. Pastors know what this is. Leaders in the church know what it is. Everywhere you or I might turn, there's somebody who's aching in mind and body and spirit because they don't have their own ready access to the bread of life, and they see that you do. They see that you seem to have it together somehow. They know that, that you have a, perhaps have a church life, and you're a person who prays, and, and they're going to gravitate to you, I guarantee it. And you're going to have to decide, is this person an annoyance or an opportunity? Now, we know what the disciples thought. They craved the peace and the time with Jesus. They were really looking forward to it. So this whole change in agenda to them was obviously an irritation. Oh, they were patient at first. When Jesus started to heal and started to teach and was surrounded by people, they stood back and said, okay, the master knows what he's doing. But then you can see, you can feel the tension in this text. They kind of move in. You know, they become his handlers. And they're ready to manipulate a closure to the day. And they actually speak to him rather abruptly and boldly by ordering, Lord, dismiss this crowd now. It's almost sundown. They're all going to be hungry. We're five to ten miles from a town. Send them while they can still perhaps find some place. Maybe there's a Kentucky Fried Chicken still open. Who knows? Send them somewhere. Get them out of our sight is what they're not quite saying. Because it's time for our privacy. The twelve did see the crowd as an inconvenient nuisance, an imposition on their agenda. And you and I do this. I do it. You're some kind of spiritual superman or superwoman if you don't do it. We're bent on protecting our private time and our own agenda. We would say, if you want that from me, make an appointment. But you know what? The most important ministry opportunities I've found are never the ones that make an appointment. 
Spiritually hungry people will come into your life. They're thinking mostly of themselves. They're not thinking of your convenience. They'll, oh, they'll say some formal words like, if you can spare me five or ten minutes, count on an hour. I was appreciated one of you the other day who came to me and said, I have something that will take 31 seconds. I said, oh, that's good. Usually I hear five minutes and it's an hour. 31, it was about 31 seconds, as a matter of fact. That's really rare. Most people will simply gobble up as much as you can give them, and they won't warn you of how much you're going to have to give to meet their need. If you see yourself, and you should see yourself if you're a believer in Christ, in some fashion, even just as a friend, as a parent, as a co-worker, involved with another spiritually needy person, you cannot be bent on the agenda of the disciples here. You've got to ask yourself, will I respond with these depths of compassion that Jesus did, or will I simply take the natural knee-jerk response, don't bother me? Christ cared for lives that were in distress. He cared for the inconvenient people who never called before they dropped in, the people who lived from one crisis to the next. He showed them extraordinary patience. Even if he didn't necessarily, and and how many, you wonder, of this crowd could you have expected that they really were coming with deep repentance and faith that would turn them into authentic disciples of the kingdom? Maybe very few, but he still cared. And it's that compassion of his that makes him able to love me. Because I'm inconvenient to him all the time. And it makes him able to shower that same compassion on you as well. Now secondly, we go into maybe the heart of the thing with the lesson here for disciples who are doing some kind of ministry, some kind of service in the name of Christ. Here's the second principle that I state this way, and I think it's the heart of this whole miracle. Jesus asks you to estimate whatever resource is in your hand and then trust him for everything else that is needed. Now, I I just underscore to you that I'm talking now about engagement in ministry. I am not talking about the method of personal salvation and how we receive God's grace because I would never tell you, I would never suggest to you that salvation begins with something that's in my hand and God adds something to that. No. Salvation is 100% of God's grace. But what we are talking about here is service. And I think the lesson comes in this stark demand of Jesus to the 12 disciples that they surely didn't expect. Why? We don't have to send them away. You give them something to eat. Because he saw through the annoyance of the disciples. He saw those attitudes, and he knew that that needed to change. And he challenged them, even shocked them here, to get involved in this human need. Mark 6.37, again, expands, has something that Matthew doesn't. Instead of them first speaking about the loaves and fish, in Mark 6.37, they have another response. One of them says, why, Lord, This was the accountant in the group, and accountants are good people. Please don't come to me and tell me I'm putting accountants down. But he he said, why, Lord, it would 
take a working man's annual salary to feed these people just for this one meal. Here we are in the middle of nowhere. What do you, Lord, how, what, what, you, you can't expect this. But then one of them did come and make the response that Matthew records as the only response when they said, all we do have is five loaves and two fish. And we're told these loaves, by the way, were probably more like what we would call rolls, very small, personal-sized loaves. Five loaves and two fish. What is that? You see, there's a continuing method of Christ here to drive would-be servants who go out in his name to first of all, before anything else happens, face their own spiritual weakness. Before he permits you to participate in any great kingdom work, you've got to face how unable you are to do it. Because he cannot use people whose hands are are already full, who feel very self-sufficient and are full of themselves. He just about never uses those people that I can find in the Scripture. You know, at the burning bush incident in Exodus 3, Moses came before the Lord there as he was aware that the living God was speaking to him and giving him a charge to go down to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. And Moses said, who am I? Lord, I don't know what heavenly directory you're using, but you called the wrong number. Who am I to do this task? And then later on, as he was in the task of leading Israel, he came to confess his inadequacy many times. Numbers 11 has him saying on an occasion where the people needed food and and they were all grumbling and yelling at him. And he, he prayed and said, Lord, where shall I find meat to give these people? Would all the fish in the sea be gathered up and be enough to satisfy them? Moses was constantly saying, Lord, who am I? How will I do this? You might remember that one thing that was part of the calling of Moses was God saying, Moses, what is in your hand? And Moses had a very common everyday instrument that every shepherd would have in his hand, a shepherd's rod, staff. And God said in so many words, I'm paraphrasing, Moses, take that staff. It's ordinary. It's nothing special. Watch me use it in marvelous ways you have never dreamed possible. The same dynamic was there with David. You know, here was David, young boy, probably early teens or so, we're not sure, certainly not out of his teens, we think, when he went up against Goliath with a slingshot. Oh, that wasn't a toy. It was an instrument that could actually kill small animals, and David knew how to use it. But it wasn't much next to the foe he went against. But you remember, David didn't just go with a slingshot. He went with giant-sized faith in the adequacy and the honor and the name of Israel's God, and that's what mattered. Jesus here challenges disciples to feed a football stadium-sized crowd. Why? He wanted to shake them. He wanted to shake loose this self-concern and self-sufficiency so that they would start trusting in a dependent way on him. I think the core of it is probably in John 15, 5. 
where Jesus told disciples there a simple sentence, apart from me, you can do nothing. Everybody who ever does any ministry, Sunday school teacher, small group leader, personal witness, even just praying for other people to come to Christ, you need that verse before you, John 15, 5. Apart from me, you can do a little bit, but not as much as, no. You can do nothing. Now we hear that, and so it makes us feel like, oh, I guess I can do nothing, so let's quit while we're ahead. I won't ever get involved in, in a task of ministry because I can do nothing. But that's not the intent of the verse. The intent of the verse is to say, all by yourself, you can do nothing. But once you know that, you have the opportunity to begin trusting God to do amazing things through your weak life offered up to him. And before you say, "Why God, you know, this thing, this witness to this impossible boss of mine or this very, oh my, this woman in my office, she just, her life is a mess and she just monopolizes me with all her troubles and I, I don't know how I can ever make an impact on her. Good. You need to say, apart from me, I can do nothing for her. Lord, what are you going to do for her through me? And you need to remind yourself in a deliberate way that he never calls us to do something for anyone or the church to do something for which he is not prepared to supply all of the means necessary to accomplish it. James Boyce has a great insight in his Uh, words on this passage in Matthew. He brings it in from the business world and tells how he once went to a business seminar, and he said he learned a lot of things he may have known before, but he came away with this definition of management. Management, according to this seminar, was getting the right things done through other people. Are you some kind of a manager? Do you have anyone working for you? Management means getting things done through other people and not brutalizing those people or driving those people like cattle, but motivating those people to understand the goal and the task and the equipment and the resources to do it and to rise up and do it well. You know, as as sovereign Lord of all things, God can work alone, and we, we think that this is probably what he chooses to do. He made planets. He he made oceans and mountain ranges. Why, he can do anything. He's, he's omnipotent. What does he need us for? Well, that's a right understanding, but the, the actual point of the matter is he may not need us, but he's a manager. He wants to work through us. God could have worked independently. If, you see, if God had worked independently that day, this miracle would have been different. 5,000 box lunches would have floated down from the sky on little parachutes. That's how God could have worked independently. Disciples, don't you understand? I'm the son of God. Watch me work. Boom, there's the food. That's not how he did it. It's very important to realize that the multiplication of great things here came in the hands of the disciples at the power of Christ. And that's how God normally works. 99% of the time, he does not work 
explosive lightning stroke, you know, thunder in the skies, miracles. I always love the fact that there surely were people in one of the Gospels, I, I think it's Luke, implies that the people, some of the people didn't even know there was a miracle. You know, Peter gave them some bread. Thank you, Peter. John gave some bread and a fish. Thank you. That only later, when they added that up, they kind of looked at each other and said, where'd all this come from? While it was happening, it, it looked like a human work. But those whose hands gave it out knew what was going on. Here's Peter with a loaf, breaks it in half. Oh, my goodness, I can't give this person a whole loaf, break it in half. There's a whole loaf, break it in half. It's still whole. Keep on breaking it, keep on breaking it. Here's a fish, there's another one in my hand. That's how God worked. One writer said God must delight in using ordinary people who have ordinary gifts because he made so many of us. Folks, I, for one, do not want to be part of a ministry for Christ that is not willing to call people. When we have listened to God's word and prayed together and said, what do you want us to do? I am not willing to be part of a ministry for Christ that is not willing to dare and go out to the edge and even past the edge of the careful, conservative estimates of what do we think we can do. Because if that's the, the agenda from which we're ministering, it's always a man-made ministry. The ministry of Christ always, always, always. I'm not just talking finances. I'm not talking just human resources. I'm talking challenge as a whole. Ministry for Christ calls us past the edge. Past what we think is allowable or affordable whether in our personal witness, our service, whether in the plans of our congregation. Jesus Christ asks, what resource is in your hand? Good. Take a good accounting of it. Know how little it is. Offer it to me, and now start trusting me for all the rest that's going to be needed. Because that's the way I work. Quickly, in the third place today, I see in this miracle that God's power is proved by the fact that even his leftovers are useful. I love the leftovers. Every one of the four Gospels, they vary in what they say. You could go read them, Matthew 14, Mark 6, Luke 9, John 6. The details vary slightly. One mentions a little boy who supplied the food. You know, and they all work together to make one picture. But every one of them mentions 12 baskets of leftovers. I believe this is important. And by the way, the, those who seem to know these things tell us that the basket, I, I tend to view a big hamper, don't you? You know, a four-foot-high hamper with big handles. Ugh, you could barely pick it up if it was full of bread. They say, no, that's not what this was. This designation, the word basket, means a, a workman's basket. Probably a basket that might have a leather strap to sling around your shoulder, and the workman might carry his tools in it. Or maybe a salesman would carry samples of his wares, or or a woman might carry, you know, food. Someone would carry food for a short journey. Think of the knapsacks that are omnipresent on our students today. Probably about that size, not bushels and bushels, a personal size carrying basket. And we're told here that after everybody was satisfied, 
That's important. They ate to their fill. Everybody was satisfied. Who knows how many thousand people? There were 12 personal-sized baskets left over. Now, you know, some of you have been cooks for church events or you've been involved in the kitchen. I'll tell you, this is the job I never will do. If, if, if I had to plan a job for 200 people, that I'd probably buy food for 500 because I don't know how to do that. I don't know how to estimate what 200 people will eat. We have people here who can do that. And maybe they'll be, it'll be work out real nicely. There'll be maybe 10% or less left over. Well, stop and think. 10, 15, 20,000 people, and the total amount of the leftovers was, it would all fit on this table right here. You know, without a, a huge pile, 12 personal baskets. That's all that was left after a stadium of people were filled. Is God a good estimator or what? But you say, well, he wasted some. No, no, I don't think so. Everyone would agree that 12 baskets has got something to do with 12 disciples who went away with a personal supply for themselves for that time in the wilderness for how many days, who knows, until it's spoiled. In other words, they went away from this act of faith and service with more in their hands than they had before they entered into it. Luke 6.38 says a wonderful thing. Jesus is the speaker when he talks about how God tends to supply needs. Jesus said, here's how God does it. He supplies full measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, poured into the lap. He's the God of abundance. And when his people as individuals or his church corporately is is somehow feeling like they have less than that to do the work God has called them to do, I believe with all my heart it's apparently a failure on our part to trust God because that's how he tends to supply. The one who rained manna from the sky, the one who told Moses strike that rock out here in the middle of no place where there's where it hasn't rained for 60 days and water enough to feed a multitude will come out. He intends to supply what he calls you to do. Don't be like a foolish man who would go to Niagara Falls and stand there looking at a torrent of water and say, I wonder if there's any place around here that I could get a drink. That's the way some Christians are. When they act as if we have nothing to do the tasks he tells us to do. Paul said, my God will supply all your need according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Here's the formula. Confess your weakness to serve Christ. Turn over to him the little that you have and trust him to supply everything else. In ministry for this Savior, the word impossible is not a word you can afford to speak. And, Father, we ask that we would know this individually as you put difficult, needy people in our lives. We pray that we would know this as a church. We pray that our leaders would always know this. You call us to do great things. Save us from our small thinking. Save us from our selfish demands for our privacy and our needs to be met. 
Help us to have great faith to match your calling. In Jesus' name, amen.